Marriage Life Podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. So, uh, we've been looking at uh, some scriptures here about uh, the return of Jesus Christ and... um, what uh, scripture teaches about our Lord's second coming and all of that. And a um, question came to my mind, and it, maybe this is something that you've probably thought about as well, but why exactly does Jesus need to return? I mean, wouldn't it just be easier to take the, the people out of here that, that know Christ or when a, when a person believes in Christ, you know, they're, bam, they're, they're taken out of here, they're in the presence of Jesus, and we just let this world just kind of burn and self-destruct and do whatever they're going to do. I mean, wouldn't that just be a lot easier? I mean, just allow time to run out and things that are going to happen are going to happen and just move on with life. So why, why exactly does Jesus need to return? And uh, Peter, in fact, interesting enough, Peter writes about these types of people in the last days, and uh, he calls uh, them scoffers who follow their own sinful desires, and he says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And uh, we need to understand that, yeah, God has a plan in everything that he is doing. And Christ is going to return. He says that he's going to return. And we may look at everything going on in time and, and things and just be like, things are just continuing in the way that they've always uh, continued. But why is it important, though, that Jesus needs to return? And so this morning, this is what I want you to take away with you. When we understand why Jesus needs to return, it will help us understand God's plan for all of eternity. Uh, The plan that he has already set in motion, everything that uh, began before the foundation of the world, actually. Uh, is what we uh, learn about in Scripture. So why does Jesus need to return? And we're going to look at a few uh, Scriptures here. Um, Next week, I I plan on speaking on when Jesus is returning. And I have 88 reasons why. No, just kidding. For those of you that are familiar with the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1988. Um, Obviously, that didn't happen, right? Um, But uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about when Jesus is is, uh, going to return. Um, So that that should be very interesting. but uh, that'll be somewhat of our last uh, message here about uh, Christ's return. But uh, this morning, I really want to focus in on why does Jesus uh, need to return? So let's look at a few things. Number one, to bring glorification. To bring glorification. What do we mean when we say this about glorify or glorification or glory? We see those, those words in the Bible. I mean, especially in Jesus' high priestly prayer uh, before he was to be crucified 
crucified. He says, Lord, you know, um, I want you to glorify the son and, you know, that uh, you would be glorified and the glorification. And we, we hear those words. And you probably heard uh, those things before and the fact that uh, uh, Jesus would be glorified, God is glorified, that God does all things to bring glory to himself. I'm sure you probably heard those things. But what, what does that mean? And so we need to remember that God is self-sustaining. In other words, he does not need anything or anyone else in order to live or to exist. God is just that. He exists all of on its own. Um, he does not need you or I. He does not need any other type of creation. He exists completely by himself, and he is self-sustaining. Uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all three are in perfect harmony with one another, and they've always existed ever uh, since the very beginning. They, they had no beginning. They've always existed. And so God is completely self-sustaining, and so he does not need anything. And if we're going to try to describe this glorification that... When Jesus returns, it's to bring glorification. We need to understand what he's saying about glory. What, what does it mean to uh, the fact that God does things for his own glory, that he is glorified, Jesus is glorified? And if we're going to describe the word glory, if you look up the word glory in, in, your, in your Bibles and you see the word, the translation of that word, um, it's basically just a word to talk about God's splendor. Right? Like the splendor. But that really doesn't give us an accurate description of what glory really is. I mean, we could probably visit places, I'm sure if you've ever gone to many of the national parks around in the United States, you know, you go to the Grand Canyon, uh, you might go to Yellowstone, and you might see some things that are pretty glorious. You might be like, boy, that's, that's neat, that's amazing. Um, in Psalms, it tells us, uh, the psalmist writes, and he says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the ferment of his handiwork, the work of his hands. Um, but what does that mean, God's glory? Well, the best description uh, that we could give this would be the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. And when we talk about the fact that God is holy, that he is completely separate from anything and everything, right? That he is totally perfect, and when we talk about God's glory, that is the manifestation of the beauty of his holiness. And so when we put this together, we think about, okay, here is Jesus Christ, and he's going to be returning, and it's going to be a manifestation of his glory, a manifestation of his holiness, of, of who he is. And we find many of these things throughout the scriptures that just put the, our Lord Jesus in a class all by himself because he is holy. Let me, let me just give you a few of them as we kind of go through some of these scriptures here. Uh, we find that God created everything through himself and for himself. That's Colossians 1.16. 
He created the world to declare his glory. That's Psalm 19, 1 through 4. He formed and made man with the same intent in Isaiah 43, 7. He condemns all who dishonor his name. That's in Exodus 27. He also rescues man to bring honor to his name, Jeremiah 14, 7, Psalms 25, 11. He rescued the Israelites for the sake of his name so that he would not be profaned among the nations. That's Ezekiel 29. He pardoned the waters for them to gain for himself everlasting renown. That's Isaiah 63, verses 12 through 14, and Psalm 106, 8. He placed Pharaoh in leadership to create for himself the opportunity to display his power, and so his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. That's Exodus uh, 9, 16. He makes a new covenant with his people, promising them a new heart, a new spirit, not for their sake, but for the sake of his holy name. That's Ezekiel 36, uh, 22 through 32. He guides us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's Psalm 23, 3, Psalm 31, 3. He delays his wrath for his own name's sake and for the sake of his praise, and he will not yield his glory to another. That's Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For the sake of his righteousness, he made his law great and glorious. That's Isaiah 42, verse 21. He has exalted his name and his word above all things for his praise. That's Psalm 138, 1 through 2. He blesses people so his ways and saving power may be known among all nations so all nations will praise him. That's Psalm 67, 1 through 7. He allows some people to die so that he might be glorified. That's John 11, verse number 4. He allows some people to be sick so the power of God may be known. That's John 9, 3. People are called to obedience by Jesus Christ's power and for his namesake. That's Romans Romans 1.5, God saves people so they might live for him. 2 Corinthians 5.15 and Hebrews 9.14. In everything we do, even in simple things like eating and drinking, we are commanded to do it all to the glory of God. That's 1 Corinthians 10.31. Jesus sought to be glorified so he might glorify his father, John 17, 1. Jesus died on the cross to glorify his, his father. That's John 12, 27 through 28. The way Jesus blesses his people is by allowing them to see his glory. That's John 17 through 24. And Jesus is the head of the church so that in everything he might have the supremacy. That's Colossians 1, 18. And when we enter his temple, the Bible tells us that we will yell out, glory. That's Psalm 29, 9. And when we are living in New Jerusalem and all the renewal of all the things that God is going to bring, Scripture teaches us in Revelation 21, 33, that God's glory will replace the sun and be our light forever. And so when we think about Jesus and his return, it is to bring about his glory his manifestation of his holiness, a visible manifestation of that. Make no doubt about it. God will be glorified in everything. But in reference to Christ's second coming, he will bring glorification on himself. Let's consider a very important passage in reference to the, the uh, exaltation and the glorification of Jesus Christ. Uh, we went through this when we were going through Philippians, but let's turn over there, Philippians chapter number two. 
And let's just revisit a couple of these truths that we uh, looked at earlier about this exaltation and this glorification of Jesus Christ. Look at verse number nine, Philippians chapter two, verse number nine. Scripture here tells us, therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We read about because Jesus was willing to humble himself, took upon him the form of a servant, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, that now God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. And so as we saw last week, Jesus willingly left Right? He, he, he left the height of heights. He left everything. He left all of the glory. And here he comes, and now he is taking upon himself this form of a servant. He has humbled himself. God, in turn, now exalts him and lifts him high and gives him this name above every name. We find that Jesus Christ here is glorified. Look at verse number nine, that this, 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 this thing that God does, God now, because Jesus left and he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, but now God has changed the position of Jesus back to where it was of glory. We read in John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me at your side with the glory I had with you before the world was created. So at one time, here is Jesus, and he was glorified, and he had this glorification with the Father, but he left that glory, became a servant, took upon himself the form of flesh, and he died. He took our place on the cross and he bore the sins of you and I. He bore the wrath of God as he was crucified. And now Jesus here, the Bible says, because of that, God now has, I love this, look at this. Therefore, God has not just exalted him, but he has highly exalted him. The word highly exalted is a word that only occurs here in the New Testament, and it could be translated as super exalted. And so Jesus went from the height of heights to the depth of depths and back again to the height of heights. Jesus did not exalt himself, but the Father exalted him, and he put his stamp of approval on Jesus. Why? because of his resurrection from the dead. And so when Jesus Christ returns, there is going to be this manifestation of God's glory. God has already highly exalted him. And I love this because it says that he has given him a name above every name. And when Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he resurrected from the grave, he has all power and all authority to be highly exalted above all. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 reminds us 
that in, even though you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he nevertheless made you alive with him, having forgiven all your transgressions. He has destroyed what was against us, a certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to his cross, disarming the rulers and the authorities. He has made a public disgrace of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so our Savior, Jesus Christ, is highly exalted. And when he returns, there's going to be a manifestation of his glory, a beauty of his holiness. Look, we continue here in verse number 10. And he says this, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You see, Christ's exaltation and lordship, Paul adds here, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. When our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, returns, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. There is going to be a manifestation of his glory. And people that, even today, that do not submit to our Lord and Savior's call of to, be, to repent and believe the gospel, they will bow their knee before our Lord and Savior and declare him as Lord. And us as believers in Christ, we will willingly, willingly bow our knee before him because there's going to be this manifestation of his glory. And I love what he says here. He says, not only on earth, but he says this. He says, those in heaven and those that are under the earth. Angels bow before our Lord. And those things that are under the earth. What are the things under the earth? Demons. They will bow their knee before our Lord when he returns. Everybody, including many of the mightiest, most powerful men who have ever lived, great kings, wealthy tycoons, evil drug lords, all will bow before the name of Jesus Christ. This is all part of his return to bring glorification to himself. We continue reading. Look at verse number 11. Don't miss this. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? The glory of God the Father. You see, God's glory is the aim of his eternal purpose in Christ. If people will not willingly give glory to God in this life, they will do so against their will throughout all of eternity. They will give glory to God. They will give glory to Christ. This is all of God's purpose. And so when Christ returns, it is to bring glorification, a manifestation of his beauty, of his holiness. And so because Jesus humbled himself through the cross, God has exalted him far above all so that all will submit to Jesus as Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And when Christ returns, there will be a manifestation, a visible manifestation of his holiness. He will bring glorification upon himself and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. So here's a good Bible truth to remember. Saturate yourself in God's holiness. 
and be excited to see his glorification when it's manifested visibly when he returns. I mean, we only, I, I love that, uh, uh, there's that uh, song um, by uh, Fanny Crosby. Um, it, it talks about this um, uh, foretaste of glory divine, right? Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And we, we, have, this, we have this foretaste. We have this, this, this little bit of what is to come as we read throughout Scripture. And we can, we can, manifest, we can, we can saturate ourselves in, in that. And we can think about it. We can dwell upon it. Because when Christ returns, it's going to be far above anything that we could ever experience or expect. And it's something that we should really look forward to is the fact when Christ returns, why he needs to return is to bring about glorification. Here's the second thing, to bring redemption. Something that we need to understand is that the story of redemption is not finished yet. I can remember when I was in elementary school, uh, we would have library time uh, once a week, and we would go to the, uh, the library there at, at the school, and the librarian there would sometimes, uh, we would do a, a book or have a book that they were going to be reading, a story that they were going to be giving, and this story would sometimes have a continuation. And the librarian, I think he kind of knew what he was doing because he would be like, all right, you know, we get to this part of this very climatic part. And then it would be like, okay, next week we will learn about what's going to happen, you know? And it'd be like, oh man, I can't wait to go back, you know, to learn about this. But now I got to go back to boring stuff, you know, school. Um, so the, the story of redemption here is not complete yet. And we read about in Scripture that as believers in Christ, the story of redemption is not finished. There's still a final chapter that needs to be played out. And the story begins before the foundation of the world because we see Christ who was slain before the foundation of the world, right? I mean, you think about everything that God has done and all of his wisdom and all of his power that he's done, that he has planned the story of redemption ever before he created the foundation of the world. It was already set. God's purposes to bring glory to himself. Everything was planned this way. And here we find that God has, has already planned that Jesus Christ would be slain before the foundation of the world. Nothing was a surprise to God. Adam's sin did not take him by surprise. He wasn't going, oh man, what am I going to do? Uh-oh, my creation just really messed all of this up. I'm going to have to figure out what to do. Didn't take him by surprise. He knew all of that. God, God is not surprised on who will repent and believe the gospel and those who will not repent and believe. He's not surprised by that one bit. And when man sinned, God set a redemptive process in place. The death of Christ was part of that process because his shed blood paid the ransom for our sins. In Ephesians 1.7, it reminds us that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And see, we have been saved from the penalty of our sin. No longer are we under condemnation. It says those that are in Christ Jesus are no longer in condemnation. 
The penalty has been paid for. And as believers in Christ, we are growing in our process, in our salvation process, this sanctification process as we are learning to say no to ungodliness and choosing rather to walk in holiness and choosing rather to walk in the spirit, denying the, the lust of the flesh. And it's a process that we're going through. In this process, we are being delivered from the power of sin because we have the Holy Spirit that is at work in our lives and we can say no to the flesh. We can say no to wanting to do things that are against God and his word. But we have not been delivered yet from the very presence of sin. And that's what all this thing about redemption is about. Because this final chapter, when Jesus returns, God's word teaches us that our bodies are going to be glorified and delivered from the very presence of sin. We will all be transformed at that point and given a body just like Christ. First John 3, 2 adds these words. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall see, be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But did you know that it's a lot better than just being delivered from the presence of sin. I want to show you some verses that just make Jesus' return something to look forward to as believers in Christ. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 28. Hebrews 9, 28 says this, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So it's not just the fact that we are going to be saved from the very presence of sin, right? Scripture here teaches us that we are going to be saved who are eagerly awaiting for him. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 5. Look what Peter writes about this. 1 Peter 1, 5, he says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 2 Thessalonians 1, 10. Paul writes here, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. One more, Romans 8. Look what Paul writes here. And this just really gives us something to really look forward to. Look what he says here, Romans 8, beginning in verse number 13. He tells us these things. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you have put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15 is key. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of what? Adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself might be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All of us in here are under a curse. All of us. And one of these days, it's not just going to be the fact that we are going to be delivered from the very power of sin, but we are going to be adopted physically in the very presence of Jesus Christ. We will be with him. We will be around him. We will be with our Lord and Savior once and finally for all when he adopts us finally. No matter how difficult things may get, remember God is not finished in the story of redemption. There's a continuation of this. And we're waiting for that final chapter to play out when God will redeem us physically. There will be this adoption that we will be in his presence. Here's the third thing. Why does Jesus need to return to bring completion? Turn with me over to 1 Peter And I want to show you a few things here that Peter writes about Christ coming. And Peter here writes to us some things about being able to endure difficulties and trials because of the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Look with me in chapter 1, and uh, we're going to start here in verse number 3. Let me just kind of walk you through a few of these verses here. Uh, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. Look at this. Ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
You see, there has been this drama that has been going on for all the ages. The earth is the center stage. We see all the, all the people that have been in this play, this drama that has been taking place. He talks about the prophets who prophesied about the grace. He talks about Jesus, and he talks about God who works salvation. He talks about the, those that, uh, that predicted the, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that were to follow. He talks about that it was revealed to them. And he talks about the things that have been announced to you and to me through those that have gone before us who have faithfully preached the word of God to us so that we could hear about this drama and, and everything that God is doing. And so there's this drama of everything that's going on. And look at this. Look at verse number 12. I love this. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And notice this. Things into which angels long to look. You know who's watching all of this? The angels. They're watching this drama taking place here on the earth. And there needs to be a final act. There needs to be a completion of everything that God is going to be doing. And so this drama is being acted out before a great host of angels who long to know how the story is going to end. And God is not going to complete the story in some remote, distant planet. He's not going to do it in some type of secretive way. It's going to be visible. It's going to be manifested for all to see. You see, before this earth is destroyed and a new heaven and a new earth is set in place, everything will be here on earth center stage and be completely visible for all to see. Jesus must return because the, the story has to be complete. Everything has to end because you got angels up there that are sitting around and they're going, okay, Gabriel, do you got the popcorn ready? It's about to start. Are you ready? They're waiting. They're waiting for it to, to end and be complete. Look at verse number 13. This truth of Jesus Christ returning is something that impacts us even here and now while we are waiting. Because look what Peter writes. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be prepared and have your hope in Jesus Christ who will complete all things. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be ready for action because when our Lord returns, there's going to be this revelation of Christ and when it's something that we need to be expecting and waiting for. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.